You are listening to Designing the Revolution. This is Chapter 17, Organisation, The Whirlwind. Okay, so the first thing to say is I haven't actually made a chapter for a fortnight because, dare I say it, I fell off my bike and broke my leg in four places. And that's why I'm in bed. <laughs> so I thought I'd better come straight about that. And if you've been watching these, uh, these episodes, you'll probably know that I was actually in prison for the first 17 or so. Um, so the plan was I was going to get out of prison and everything was going to be hunky-dory and I was going to do these chapters, you know, in some nice civilised room rather than from my bed. Anyway, uh, yeah, I've broken my leg and I'm going to be semi-bedridden for about nine weeks. So there we are, sort of eventful, eventful uh, a situation. So hopefully I'm not going to be abducted by aliens or something in, 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 later on in these, uh, in these podcasts. But we'll see, won't we? Okay, so Jamie says I can't show you my leg, by the way, so I won't show you. Anyway, for those of you who aren't watching this on YouTube, you won't be able to see it. But believe me, it's not pretty. Um, so that's enough about me. Let's get on with the situation. So I've done... Was it two two chapters about the whole overall organisation, uh, leadership situation, the dynamo situation, and in this chapter I'm going to sort of take a little bit of an overview of this whole organisational model that we've been creating, which has gone on for about ten or twelve uh, sessions, and I want to situate it in in a wider the wider context of what you might call broadly left-wing thought. So, um, yeah, I'm going to do that in this in this chapter and then we're going to look at a case study, dare I say, of uh, civil resistance organisations in this organ uh, network called A22. Um, and after that, we'll be on to the main show, which is the actual revolution itself, which I'm sure many of you uh, looking forward to and yeah it's going to be quite exciting dare I say it. All right so just taking a little bit of an overview for a moment you could say that there's two competing general approaches to radical political change which is not what I'm doing here. So one is the sort of Gramsci approach so what Gramsci was saying, we've touched on Gramsci quite a bit. So Gramsci was a smart guy and he came up with a really good notion, which was if you're going to fundamentally change a regime, a culture, uh, the politics of a country, then you have to have this go through the institutions approach. I think it's called walk through the uh, institutions and it's been an approach which has existed for the last 40 or 50 years. And the general idea is, you know, it's gradualist. You still have radical aims, but you're pushing through, you're getting control of councils and you're talking to people and you're building alliances and you're doing cultural events. And it's all there's this emerging ecology of socialisation of, of the culture and, and the economy. And 
It's got a lot going for it in so much as modern society is complex and during this broadly reformist period of Western history, you know, from maybe the 1960s through to 1989, it seemed to be the only game in town and was very influential and we've talked about this sort of reformist paradigm. However, as we all know, if you've been watching these uh, these episodes is that's not what I've been saying that's not what the approach here is the approach here is there's a rupture there's there's a moment of of major transgression and this could be a day it could be a week it could be a six months but this is not a five-year situation and the big case study here obviously is is Extinction Rebellion which as you know I helped to co-design and in two weeks in 2019, everything changed in a certain sense, right? You know, no one's pretending everything, everything changed, but something significantly changed, which was the general ambience of the discussion around, around civil disobedience, around the climate in Britain, and people in, you know, NGOs were going, more changed in that blockade of London in April 2019 than they had achieved in 20 years. In other words, there was a new anti- uh, post Gramsci thesis uh, entered the political space and it was saying no 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 what we can do is go and cause this big major disruption and it creates a million conversations you know 10 million conversations and afterwards 67% of the population are going fuck there's a climate emergency this is new it's real these people are right I don't particularly like them but it is something it's a thing the climate became a thing Okay, so that's on one side of the of, of the approach. The other side of the approach is, is, you know, so one way of describing the other side of the approach is a sort of anarchist direct action, sort of extreme rupture approach, which is this thing, this this approach, which has been built up over the last twenty years, thirty years, which is these explosions of of uprisings and and sudden sudden social formations of, of anger and sociability, you know, taking the squares and all this sort of thing. And there's no organisation and it just blows up and then it sort of collapses back down again. So that's not us either. What, what, what the approach I've described over the last uh, 10 or 20 episodes is, I hesitate to use these two words, but let's just use them, is, is what you might call a revolutionary organisation approach. So it's structured, it's elements of a Gramsci-esque approach. You know, you've got organisation, but it's fundamentally about civil disobedience. It's about civil resistance. It's about rupture. So it's also taking on that sort of anarchist direct action approach uh, and fusing and arguably fusing the best of both orientations in the context of this new revolutionary period, uh, this new sociological analysis that the system is going to collapse and you know that's our founding orientation. Okay so what I'm going to do then is, is, is argue and I think I've mentioned that there's three broad sub-scenarios that we're moving into in the next five years. And what I'm going to argue is that regardless of which one of these three actually comes out as the actual mechanism of, of regime change, having a solid revolutionary organisation 
is the most functional mechanism, uh, uh, functional way of maximising the probability of a pro-social outcome on all three scenarios. Um, and the reason for that is, is, you know, in two or three words, is because the org an organisational approach creates this realness, this solidity, and it enables you to build on the great, you know, emotional uprising, you know, fluidity that comes when people get really mad and then something gets triggered and everyone goes to the street and all the rest of it. So within this paradigm then of revolutionary change, system change as the anemic euphemism used to be, um, you know, more technically a change in the political regime with a big social revolutionary, spiritual revolution uh, elements to it, this broad orientation. Arguably it has, it comes about through free, free scenarios. And these free scenarios I'm going to go through are then going to lead on to this broader discussion we're going to have for the next 10, 10 episodes, which is how is the actual revolutionary period constructed? How, how, how do we pro-socially uh, initiate it? How do we respond to all the things that are going to get thrown at it, etc., uh, etc. Et all right. So the first, the first scenario, and as I say, I think I've gone through this uh, before, but I'm just going to give, give a little bit of a review of it. The first scenario is what you might call sequential campaigns. So the classical, the classical historical example here is Martin Luther King. Um, you know, 1958, there was the um, Montgomery bus boycotts. Out of nowhere, this big transgressive era-changing phenomenon after 70, 90 years or whatever of, you know, deficient reformist pleasantness. Wham, bam, 20,000 people not going on the buses. And what that did was it established this new civil disobedience, civil resistance uh, paradigm amongst black radicals in America. And then after that, arguably, though obviously in reality it was a bit more messy than this, but arguably there was a sequence of campaigns and each campaign when it was won, assuming it was won and they didn't win all of them, but broadly speaking they were won and they created this surge of enthusiasm and then you went on to this next campaign and the next campaign and each campaign made a, a bigger structural impact both culturally on the country people talking about racism and also um, in terms of legislative change in other words a fundamental different regime you might argue depending upon how you define regime now with with um, Extinction Rebellion and to a certain extent with Insulate Britain and Just Stop Oil that in, in the UK context, they've all been situated in this, into this broader framework of this scenario. You know, we're going to win this campaign, then we're going to get onto the next one and then we're going to get onto the next one. And one of the reasons why we're, we're doing these uh, episodes is that's probably not how it's going to work because in 2023, the system is so fucked that it's just not going to be able to respond. Even if you did win a campaign, no one's deluded. You could win no oil and gas. You've still got this massive, you know, juggernaut of suicidal self-destruction and this capitalist, you know, extractive uh, paradigm that the whole global 
ruling class is embedded into. So having said that, never say never. You know, maybe there's still a slight possibility this is going to work. Certainly in countries like Norway or Sweden, you know, highly developed social democratic countries, they are going to not have a revolutionary episode because they're going to make this transition. And arguably, you know, if we were going to be doing it in 2010, 2005, at that stage, the radical reform, Martin Luther King-esque, you know, one campaign after another mechanism, it could have worked. In 2023, it's done. You know, it's five minutes past midnight. We are going into this hellscape of climate catastrophe. No one quite knows how it's going to, bad it's going to be and exactly what's going to happen. I spent two or three episodes, you know, mapping out the territory, but we know something's going to come and it's going to create an uprising context. Okay, but if that is the case, then we're fine, right? We've got our organisation and we're going to we're going to be going through these, these, these campaigns. So the organisational model that I've outlined is fine on this scenario. The second scenario, which is the main one, I, I would say at this stage in history, is what you might call the proactive creation of the revolution, the proactive creation of a massive series of social disruptions, uprisings, uh, interactive contests with the ruling class, with the with the mainstream space and progressively through that you get this this regime change scenario and the whole purpose of this organizational model is is to create this this army this battering ram that can move in to this space where you know the social system's wobbling and it's wobbling but it's not fallen over and what we do is we give it that gentle or not so gentle push and it rolls over. In other words, we've got this massive agency to make this revolution happen five, ten years before it will sort of automatically will because we've got our ducks in a row and we're doing mass mobilising and we're doing mass civil disobedience and all the rest of it. So historically, there's a number of examples of this and you know, every each example's got its own quirks and you can pick holes in it and what have you. But to give a little flavour, you could say the solidarity movement in Poland before 1989 was this sort of model. You know, communism was going to collapse eventually, but it certainly helped that for about 10 years there was a big trade union movement, there was mass strikes. You know, the state came in, the communist state came in and arrested everyone and put them in prison and went dormant for a while. But then it resurged. And, you know, as it got towards 1989, they basically gave it the push. And it was the first country in Eastern Europe that basically flipped out of the Soviet model. Um, so you can see how that that works, right? And arguably, maybe a little bit more controversially, this is broadly what happened in 1917 with the Soviet Revolution, the Bolshevik Revolution, where there was a whole series of, of disruptions over a year or two, um, which were proactively created by the Bolsheviks. 
they had an organisational solidity, to put it mildly, <laughs> and they went bang, 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 bang. Now, now, you know, just in case the Daily Mail is listening to this or anything, you know, for the record, I'm not making a value judgment on whether that was good or bad. I'm just looking at it sociologically and saying you can see here uh, from an organisational observation point of view how this works, that you've got this this um, a solid uh, social formation which is strategically working for a regime change. Okay, so that's the second uh, scenario. So the third scenario is, you know, the title, <laughs> the provocative title of this episode, which is The Whirlwind, okay? So this comes a little bit from the Engler Brothers. Um, um, oh, I'm trying to think what the name of their book is. Uh, anyway, I'll put it in the in the notes. But the um, the whirlwind is this concept that everyone knows. You just need to read some history that you, revolutions and uprisings endlessly. Um, oh, this is an uprising. Right, that's what it's called. Yeah, this is an uprising. Check it out. It's a great book. Um, yeah, all through history maybe the main scenario with revolutionary episodes is all the activist guys, you know, or intellectual guys, they're all trending along, you know, trying to work things out. And suddenly, 300 miles away, in a city and town they'd never organised in, there's a sudden mass strike or riots or some big act of mass civil disobedience in the modern period. And no one quite understands why it happened. And we know why it happened, because, you know, this is the notion of the unpredictability of a complex social system. So we've got an understanding nowadays about why these things go on. And I've talked about this in previous episodes. The upshot of it is, is it's all hitting off, right? If it's all hitting off, if you haven't got an organisation to sort of go into some dialogical sort of uh, relationship with this chaotic uprising phenomenon, then we know what happens, which is what happened in 2012 with the Egyptian revolution, Tahrir Square, you know, millions of people go to the square. It's massively sort of romantic in the classical sense of the word. You know, everyone's massively enthusiastic. You know, there's all this idealism, but there's no, there's no structure. And within three or four weeks of, you know, the change of the regime, there's no change of regime really because, you know, the, the power vacuum gets taken up by various army and uh, various factions and, you know, within two years back to where he started. Similarly with the other classic example, which is Occupy, you know, this massive upsurgence of enthusiasm and rage and idealism, you know, all good stuff. And, you know, I'm not knocking it for a minute in terms of it you know, changing our general culture and all the rest of it. But in terms of actually getting the job done, i.e. real change, no one's arguing that it, was a, you know, it wasn't a failure because there was no organisational solidity. Now, the thing to remember with those two, with those two historical examples is it wasn't like there weren't organisational formations in, in the social space at the time. There were things knocking around, you know, there was the Muslim Brotherhood, for instance, in in uh, in um, in Egypt, and you know they had a politics which, you know, a lot of people watching this podcast won't necessarily agree. But that's neither here nor there. They had a regime change agenda officially, but 
they had sort of got embedded in what you might call a Gramsci-esque sludge, <laughs> which is, you know, broadly where the British left is at as, as well, which is, which is they just can't respond. You know, they has to go to a committee meeting and, you know, the leadership is a bit timid and they've been semi-co-opted and there's bureaucratic processes and it's just, it just can't respond. And then similarly with Occupy, you know, classically speaking, you know, there was this thing called the anarchist establishment. Again, on the tin, it said it was revolutionary, but it wasn't really very good, to put it mildly, of actually identifying how a revolutionary episode works and even less actually doing anything about it. So when I say there needs to be the organisational formation, it's the organisational formation which, which we've been talking about in the last few episodes. Um, this 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 civil resistance organization which can go in assist train interact and then shape in a participatory way uh the direction of of, of this uprising and fingers crossed you know create something uh useful out of it so i'm just going to give you a little you know semi-funny case study about this on a very small scale but you can sort of hopefully you can see the dynamics so you know, before I did Extinction Rebellion stuff, I was doing research at King's College and, you know, one of my research uh, uh, things was working with this radical trade union. And I helped, you know, help them do some direct action campaigns. It was all really great, good fun. And and then I said to the president of the union, I said, hey, you know, there's this big company, I'm not going to say who it is, so you can probably guess. And they're, they're employing these uh, cyclists to deliver food. And... You know, they're all getting crap wages. They're paid, you know, for the drop rather than for the hour and all the rest of it. The upshot of it is, is I did some field research. I worked out, you know, how rapidly we could bring people into the union and recruit them and do street canvassing. So I did this plan with the president of the union. So we had this civil resistance organisational model ready to go. Um, and I went on holiday. And while I was on holiday... Uh, just my good luck is there was a whirlwind moment in the employees of this unit of this company because these cyclists and motorcyclists they were really pissed off um, so all these Brazilian Brazilian motorcyclists had this wild cat strike so this was a whirlwind moment it came out of nowhere you know some guy got really pissed off he had a bit of a you know lively argument with the employees stormed out all his mates went with him it all snowballed and when two or three days you know a good thousand or two i can't remember but there's a lot of these guys they're all on strike total chaos no structure it wasn't quite clear what they were demanding it wasn't quite clear who was negotiating with who you know so i arrived back from holiday and it was just you know it was a mess so what this trade union did was they went in, they suggested, you know, there was a, a negotiation committee to negotiate with the company. They got some sort of order organised, you know, there was some sort of vague compromise from what I can remember. But then over the next two months, there was a concerted attempt to engage with this whirlwind moment, get people into meetings, you know, try and get these Brazilian guys to get some meeting culture, you know, don't talk over each other, don't shout at each other, don't walk out, walk in, you know. <laughs> it was just, there was a lot of shouting, let's put it like that. And and over those three months, basically, we, we organised um, 
a civil resistance revolutionary organisation which could then actually do the real deal, which was go to the company, give them an ultimatum, do legal and strike action and get a significant win, which is what happened. So again, you know, no one's, no one's pretending that whirlwind moments are, in, you know, they're intrinsically unorganisable, right? And they just happen and no one's going to stop them from happening. But in so much as they do happen, having this organisational model is the optimal uh, strategy at this moment in time before one of, one of them happens. So in other words, whatever, wh whichever of these threes you're going to be, you know, doing the business, um, it's the best. It's the best strategy is to build this thing from that we've been talking about. All right, so I'm going to leave, leave it there. I'm not talking hopefully too long in this episode. Um, I just want to make one or two summary point, points about it, which is, you know, as a slight provocation, I want to suggest to you that the key word here is discipline, okay? The key word is discipline. We're moving out of this privileged, chaotic, you know, give and take consumer activism mode. We're facing the end of the world. What we need to be moving into is this disciplined organisational model. And by disciplined, I mean people do stuff that isn't that sexy. You know, they focus on the job. They work with people they don't particularly want to work with because they've got a higher purpose. It's got a seriousness to it because we're dealing with a beyond the serious situation. And you know, there's one or two elements, sort of analogies here. It's like there's a sort of archetypal story of, you know, people going to a spiritual master and going, you know, I want to find enlightenment. And they think it's going to be a weekend event and they're going to read a few bucks. And the spiritual master goes and gets them to chop wood for three months or go and do the washing up. And basically what the spiritual master is doing is saying, you know, what the fuck, you need to get grounded before you can move on to anywhere else and you know the political and parallel to that is the freedom summer example which i think i've spoken about you know five thousand college kids in i think 1963 they've got this romantic idea they're going to go down to the mississippi you're going to register these black guys to vote it's all going to be really exciting you know blah 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 they're interviewed and they said they're asked if we ask, you know, if we want you to stuff envelopes for three months, uh, can you cope with that? And, you know, well, some of them can and some of them can't. But what, what the project was saying is, unless you can do all the shitty jobs, it's just not going to work, right? Because doing the shitty jobs, number one, there's loads of shitty jobs that need to be done. And number two is it's, you know, without sounding too conservative, it's character building, okay? You know, that's how you learn to be in service. You realise that, most of the people in the world on most days of the week are doing shitty jobs. So why the fuck shouldn't you do a shitty job, right? What makes you special? You know, if you're going to be a revolutionary, you need to be able to handle reality. And this, you know, to say something positive about Gramsci is what Gramsci was saying when he had this notion of organic intellectuals, right? The intellectuals, the guys, you know, the people listening to this podcast, you're the intellectuals. You're not going to, you're not going to just swan into the revolution. And even if you did, 
you just end up making a mess of it. You've got to actually be there, as Gramsci would say in his time, on the factory floor. The organic intellectual is the worker. He's the worker intellectual. He's there. He intimately and viscerally understands what it is to do a 12 hour day. He understands the difficulties of, you know, trying to hold down a working class job in 1955, you know, Turin. And through that visceral understanding, he can then engage with the workers, understand it and come up with a strategy, a praxis, as you might say, which is going to work, right? Which is rooted in, in, in the material reality of, 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 of the time. In other words, the last few episodes have been radically non-academic, right? And, and they're trying to get you to think about what you need to do before you get onto this sexy part of the, of the episode, which is doing the revolution itself. Uh, so don't skip them, okay? <laughs> Re, uh, listen to them and actually do the stuff. And building this organisation, building this organisation is not just about making it real. It's also about learning how to engage in ethical social interaction. That unless you build an organisation that has an ethical, moral basis, a service orientation, a trust orientation, an integrity orientation, you're lost, right? And this is one of the, aside from that being a sort of obvious moral point, there's massive empirical support for this. If you're going to create something that's pro-social, your operation has to have principles. And, and that creates this, you know, joyful uh, organisational culture where you haven't got twats like being like power mad and all this sort of stuff. And I'll be saying a lot more about this in, in coming episode. And that's the pathway to success. OK, so in a minute, well, yeah, on, in the next episode, I'm going to record two or three today. In the next episode, we're going to go on to these case studies, these A22 projects. And the last thing I'll say is, all this stuff we've been looking at, this isn't just some guy, Roger Hallam, you know, sitting in bed, making ideas up. The ex super exciting thing is this is the template. What I've been telling you is the template for the most successful civil resistance climate formations of the last two years, arguably since XR, in so much as it started with XR 2019. April 2019. In other words, this shit works, okay? It is real, it works, and it's got massive transformative potential, which isn't to say it's a done deal, right? But what it is to say is, it gives you like a 50, 70% chance of doing something impressive. In other words, this methodology has created the biggest climate campaigns in five Western democracies in the last 12 to 18 months. That's off the scale, like good, in social scientific terms, in general rhetorical terms. It's amazing, right? It's very difficult to do this work, as many people know. To get that level, level of success, and the reason for that level of success is we've hit, right, on how to do this stuff. And it's been a collective, right, effort. You know, I'm not saying for a minute it's all me or anything silly like that. You know, we've stood on the shoulders of giants. There's been loads of people doing iterative work, loads of people communicating it. My role has largely been getting it in some sort of systematic form. So we're on to something here. And over the next episodes, of course, 
are going to be more speculative, more theoretical, because we don't quite know how to organise a revolutionary episode in a Western society. But that doesn't mean we're starting with a blank sheet of paper. We're starting with enormous richness of data uh, analysis, you know, tradition, theoretical solidity. And um, so next next episode, I'll give you um, I'll give you a few case studies, hopefully to cheer you up. Thanks very much.